Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast at part two of the great rock and roll debate with Neil Nixon. This is your host at 1001 Heroes, John Hagedorn. Let's do some catch-up here. In part one, we set up the ground rules for this debate, which are as follows. First and foremost, we're defining rock and roll basically as top 40, which means we can open it up to a wider mix of music genres. And we've limited the three decades to the 50s, 60s, and 70s. This was early rock and roll. So this is kind of a history lesson in rock and pop music, albeit a brief one. Because if we could, we would take hours just to cover each decade. Our criteria for best decade consists of these three qualities. Consistency, meaning at least 80% of the whole 10 years of that decade is hot. And that's our definition. Innovation, new movements started. Sound techniques, new genres. Endurance. How is the music from that decade accepted today? Those are the three criteria for voting for best decade. Consistency, innovation, and endurance. In part one, Neil provided an excellent overview of rock from 1980 to present. And then we jumped into the 50s and some of the 60s. As I edited that interview, it was easy to see that Neil is a fantastic guest to have on. And he has a wide knowledge of all things rock and roll. So I have a hunch we'll be doing more specials like this one. Before we begin with part two of our debate, I'd like to add some footnotes to the 50s discussion, specifically on 50s consistency. In setting up our ground rules, we agreed that 80% of the decade in question had to be hot for that decade to qualify. I think we underscored the 50s by saying that 1954 through 1959 were the only really hot years. Actually, 52 to 54 were the years where rock and roll really began, and it was pretty hot. Example. In 1951, Ike Turner killed it with Rocket 88 on Chess Records out of Memphis, produced by none other than Sam Phillips, who would become famous a few years later when he signed Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley, Carl Perkins, and Jerry Lee Lewis, all on the same day. It was Ike Turner and his Kings of Rhythm, with Jackie Brunston doing the lead vocals and Turner on the piano, who opened up the floodgates to rock and roll. Or so said the Rock Music Hall of Fame, who spent hours of long debate on just who should get the credit for the first rock and roll song ever recorded. And Rocket 88 came up the winner. What did Ike get for the song? $40. Later came Tina. They had a great stage act going right through the 60s. In 1952, Big Mama Thornton recorded Hound Dog, which was the first song written by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, who were the principal early hit makers for Elvis. There was a ton of very hot rhythm and blues coming out of the Mississippi Delta, and that was shaping itself into rock. Artists like Muddy Waters, Lightning Hopkins, John Lee Hooker, and Buddy Guy, just to name a few, were combining blues and rhythm and adding some pretty forward lyrics and guitar sounds. In 1953, Money Honey by Clyde McFadder and the Drifters led the charts, while Joe Turner, Fats Domino, Bill Haley, with songs like Crazy Man Crazy, The Clovers, The Orioles, Laverne Baker, and Lloyd Price shared radio time with Hank Williams, Winona Harris, Dean Martin, and Eartha Kitt. So right there in 1953, you could definitely see the change coming. And soon things really began to shake, rattle, and roll. And by the way, footnote two, when Rock and Roll Hall of Fame launched their singles category in 2018, Rocket 88 was one of the six greatest singles, along with Link Ray's Rumble, Louie Louie by the Kingsman, A Whiter Shade of Pale by Procol Harum, Born to be Wild by Steppenwolf, and The Twist by Chubby Checker. Which brings us to footnote three. When Dick Clark was hosting American Bandstand in Philadelphia in the late 50s and early 60s, 
"'He had been hearing about a very talented young man in Philadelphia "'named Ernest Evans, who was spending his nights entertaining in nightclubs and bars "'by doing a pretty good impression of Fats Domino, "'as well as Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis. "'Ernest was going by the name then of Chubby Evans. "'It was arranged for young Chubby to do a private recording "'for American Bandstand host Dick Clark. "'At this recording session, Evans got his stage name from Clark's wife, "'who asked Evans what his name was backstage. "'Well,' he replied, "'my friends call me Chubby.' As he had just completed a Fats Domino impression, she smiled and said, As in checkers? Evans laughed and said, as the story goes, Well, if I can't be a Fat Domino, I can be a chubby checker. And history was made. And now part two of the great rock and roll debate with Neil Nixon, which we join in progress. That first album is just exploding with ideas. Yeah, no, I, I, I would give you that. So you're going to put the... You're going to put the 60s as your number one decade, aren't you? Absolutely. I mean, I'm brushing the surface with the 60s, but they're my number one for innovation, for new movements started, and a lot of those genres were brand new movements in music. Okay. Their sound techniques uh, really improved in the 60s, and a lot of stuff was developed. You had geniuses like Spectre. You had geniuses like Brian Wilson. And if you look back at the stuff he put out, he was an absolute genius in terms of oh, harmony, yeah. he brought he brought new sounds into rock and roll. That Pet Sounds album, I think Rolling Stone is they got still in their top ten of all time albums. Yeah, uh, yeah, quite probably. And there are one or two great there are one or two great albums from the nineteen sixties that by bands who made one hugely one brilliant album. I mean, the, um, funny enough, I, my, the shuffle that I just when I'm not picking any music i just stick it on a shuffle and it threw up a moby grape track on my computer the <laughs> other day and i thought God, i haven't heard that the first moby grape album is just brilliant i mean it's it's okay they shot themselves in the foot by releasing i think there's 13 tracks on the album and they released 10 of them on five singles that they put out at the same time as the album I and mean, what were they thinking <laughs> But but the, the track that it threw up my computer was 805, which is one of the gentler tracks on there. But it, it's brilliant. Um, uh, so I'm going to go. I'm, the, 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 there's the, there's no tension left for your listeners here because by the time we pick two, we've rated two genres. It's obvious where we're going to go with the other one. Uh, two decades. It's obvious. I'm going to go number two for the, uh, the the 1960s. We'll return to this interview right after this sponsor message. And now we're back with Neil Nixon. Um, I'll have my 1970s rant then, John. So the the 19th, of the three decades we're looking at, I think the 1970s scores probably higher across the board. Um, it's, it's endurance is questionable because there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make any sense other than when it was released. But the best of the 70s does make sense. So my rant about why it's the best decade would start with a simple two simple points i think uh first of all if you say the 60s are the best it's quite a u.s centric point of view because it just took the rest of the world quite a long time to catch up economically i read something not long ago which suggested that at the end of the 1940s half the wealth in the entire world was in the united states mm -hmm. so whilst we've got great things going on in Britain in the 19th. The 1950s was a pretty poor decade for British music. The 1960s had real hotspots like Liverpool and London and, and whatever. Uh, and Manchester was pretty hot. But well, you had Lonnie Donegan of, and the skiffle. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Who d- don't knock that because a bit a bit like punk rock. The great thing about Skiffle was because it was so simple. Even if a lot of the records were didn't last, it was an inspiration for people to pick up guitars. So. If you want an example of a guitar player who started in skiffle and ended up being an absolute legend, Jimmy Page. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it, there is a film that turned. It's, it'll be on YouTube. It turns up every once in a while, and it's Jimmy Page in about 1961 playing in the skiffle band. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he's he, well, he's, he's about 15 anyway in the skiffle band, and you know it's to the point where you don't recognise him, but. Um, so my rant about the 70s would be this, that the rest of the world caught up. So consequently, there's something that goes on in the 1970s, which is that loads of other currents come into music. So things like some other countries that didn't really have the economic power to be great musical countries start to make a claim on it. And just to pull an example right out of the air, um, one of the most out there incredible prog rock albums you will ever hear is 666 by Aphrodite's Child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, They're Greek. They, they, you couldn't have made a record like that in Greece in the 1960s because the studios just didn't exist. So the world catches up in the 1970s, therefore it's, it's more vibrant, there's more things going on. The other point I'd make at the start of it is that there's a sweet spot in the music industry between about 1967 and 1977 where the music industry is still an industry. So when they're writing contracts, they're signing musicians with the expectation that all these people are going to do is make great records and make money. And by the end of the 1960s, the industry has realized that albums are a huge source of revenue. So they become the biggest earner. So around the time of, say, Monterey Pop and the big festivals in the 70s, in the late 60s, they're signing bands with the expectation that the bands will make albums and they may have hit singles or they may not. And But they're, they're primarily albums artists, Pink Floyd, Deep Purple people. I and mean, Pink Floyd became albums, according to their own take on it, they became an albums band because when they lost Sid Barrett, none of them could write. Um, and there's, there's something in that. But so in terms of innovation, the notion of an album being a complete statement and you're going up in musical directions is huge in the 1970s. And until the end of that decade, that's probably the main thing driving the music, by which point later on, people start to think of the music in a much more corporate way. And then 20 years after that, you've got, instead of signing artists, you sign, you just take over a whole record company. So the very best of the 70s, it's a time when, probably music was both innocent enough to think that it could achieve everything and successful enough that people were buying it and that success with people taking risks was driving a lot more of it so um i mean uh, the high spot of that in a way although i'm not going to say that it's it's the best album ever made or anything but virgin records in britain started off and again the british record industry as a whole was big enough that we could you know be quite risk-taking with stuff But basically, the idea of the record label was that you were going to sign all these artists who were going to sell albums, and they were going to sell albums that people would want to collect. So they were never really about singles. And I mean, you never get that lucky. The first album on Virgin Records was Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield. No record company before or since has started its account with a 20 million selling (laughs) record. So in, in terms of innovation, the 70s probably brings more ideas into the middle and uses them in more creative ways than ever. It doesn't start so many genres, 
But in terms of the range of sounds and the fact that people are going for creativity above all else, yeah, it's the it's the most innovative decade. Even when it's awful, even when people are making dreadful records and lying around stoned and thinking they're brilliant, they're taking chances. And you know, there's a, a typical '70s album you could not make now would be uh, if I could only remember my name by David Crosby. Yeah. yeah? I mean, it's absolutely soaked in weed, that album, and hallucinogenic drugs, yeah? The 70s, it, the 70s I, I, were soaked in drugs, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think the reason the, the Beatles quit in 1970, 71, uh, was because they knew the 70s had come, and they just said, this is it. We, we had our day. Everything's going to go downhill from here. It's time to break up as a group, guys. We, we've had it. Okay, well, American radio went into a more formulaic thing, but again, what would you expect a British person to say? The 70s were great for the rest of the world. One, one difference, one main difference between the US and the US, between the US and the UK, our main music broadcaster in the 70s, it still is now, but they had more power in the 70s because there was less competition, was the BBC, and their public service. So they don't have to attract advertisers. So late night BBC was just home to specialist shows and some of the bands that came up some of the performers that came up in the uk and were hugely successful throughout the 70s couldn't have made it any other place you know i mean there, there isn't an american equivalent of jethro tull right and I, again <laughs> i'm not saying jethro tull are brilliant but i am saying that throughout most of the 70s they would be banking one or two million dollars per tour in america they had number one albums over there um, they certainly did things that nobody else was thinking of doing. And some, I mean, I, I saw them perform. I saw Ian Anderson perform at a festival a few years ago, and he still stands on one leg. And there's, there's a bit of trickery with his flute playing. But on the other hand, musically, they're just like nothing else. And the, the 70s produced more of those kind of people, right? In terms of the consistency of it, no, because it's a consistent explosion that's just moving out and moving out. Yeah. So it's a different kind of consistency. It's set up the pattern that you'll see on the downloading services and stuff now where people just nick ideas from left, right and centre but set out to do something that nobody else is doing. There's much more focus on that in the 70s than there was in the 60s where it was the 60s is often a different attempt, certainly until the late, the late 60s, where you try to contain all these ideas and you say, well, you know, there's that much talent in this band. We can do a bit of this, a bit of that. And the Beatles are a perfect example of that. There's, you know, there's country tunes, there's tunes where occasionally they cover original soul music. Sometimes they're psychedelic, but basically they're still a beat group to the very end. You can still hear that beat group in them. Um, so the, the endurance of 70s music, because this it's so big, it's very difficult to say that all of it's endured. The best of it is it as enduring as anything else and a lot of the albums that people treasure not singles necessarily but a lot of the albums that people treasure as the very best things ever made are from the 1970s I mean interestingly when Uncut magazine in this country a while ago did a like their best ever album chart you know which, which like Rolling Stone do and they broke it down into how many albums from each year and the, the year that had the most albums from in their best of chart was 1973 mm -hmm. uh, which is you know dark side of the moon is 1973 but when people appreciate whole albums like i say a lot of the best of those albums 
um, which are almost defining albums of a genre, were made in the 1970s. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll end this rant with a discussion of one album. So uh, the proof of the power of the 70s albums as enduring is that you've, you know, most of the definitive album, the definitive heavy rock albums were made in the 1970s, I would say, unless you want to count Back in Black by ACDC, that's only just over the border, right? The definitive progressive rock albums, the best soul albums, probably, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, never better than then, yeah? I'll go um, with you on that. There was some really good black soul, uh, especially in the early 70s, 71, 2, 3, and 4. There was some great stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean... My favourite Stevie Wonder album is Fulfilling This First Finale, actually, which is the one between Inner Visions and um, Songs in the Key of Life. But, I mean, he he was just on fire for most of that decade. And the, the best reggae albums are from the 1970s, yeah. and rap is sort of getting going there. Um, and Eagles, The Eagles were hot most, in the 70s, and disco we haven't even mentioned yet. That was a whole new genre, and that was yeah. very innovative. Uh, that that's when yes. that's when uh, mixers and an electronic mixing started to enter the music picture, and you can say there's a lot yeah. of positives and negatives to that, but at least it worked yes. for disco yeah. for a while. Yeah, yeah, I did, and and the the best of disco and di disco is a whole culture. I mean, the whole thing about bringing in you know, a lot of disco, certainly what drove it was the kind of gay market, wasn't it, to to a large extent, and. Again, that's that's absolutely huge in the set, and the, a lot of the best of that music is from the 1970s. It became a little bit more predictable in the 80s. Interesting, you mentioned the Eagles, because a lot of the best albums, um, you know, sort of spawn a genre, don't they? So where where people come up with a really great idea and it's encapsulated in an album. So this tubular bells which I mentioned, there are quite a lot of pale imitations, including some of the later albums by the same guy, you know. And so the 70s has more of those albums that are the kind of touchstone for people to go off. And it, the Eagles are an interesting case in point because and I heard David Crosby on a documentary having an absolute broadside at the Eagles about the fact that uh, his complaint was they never took any risks. You know, it's all about perfection. And it's, well, it's interesting because the early Eagles did actually, I'd, I'd say the first three Eagles albums are actually quite risk taking in their own understated way. But there are loads of albums that started a genre. Hotel California yeah. is an absolute watershed album in the history of the I music agree. industry because it's arguably, yeah, but it's arguably the only album in the history of the music industry that actually stopped a genre because if you follow country rock after Hotel California, all the pretenders to the Eagles crown, all the people who think they could be the Eagles, almost take a look at Hotel California and think, we can't, we can't touch that. Yeah. <laughs> so Poco, go, yeah. you know, p people like Poco who supplied the Eagles with, with members over the years, didn't they? I mean, but, yeah, both the Eagles bass players are ex-Poco. Um, you know, they go more country. A lot of the others sort of bland out. So, you know, they, they bland out into album-orientated rock. And, I mean, that's a that's an absolute high watermark for the power of an album. There's nothing... So that's what, that's 1976, isn't it, Hotel California? You know, it, it's the, the album is almost at, at its height in that decade of both having kind of creative power, so it sets a cultural standard, and at the same time having a kind of commercial power. And, you know, to this day, Hotel, I mean, the Eagles, if you look at the best-selling albums of all time, right at the very top, the Eagles are very well represented, aren't they? Because both Hotel California and the first greatest hits. I mean, they're, they're one of the few bands who were so powerful, they... 
thought, well, we're at the height of our power. Now we'll release the greatest hits. Normally you do it on the way down. Yep. Yeah. So I, that, that's my, my 70s rant is that the, the albums are hugely enduring. There's innovation is all over the place. And even when it's terrible, people are really trying not to be. So in the Oscar Wilde sense, they're, they might be lying in the gutter, but they're looking at the stars, right? Yeah. <laughs> and there are some awful 70s albums, but at the time, they probably the people making them probably didn't think they were awful. I mean, in the worst moments, they're lying around completely stone thinking, this is great, people are going to love it, and they don't. Um, the, the only place the 70s falls down is inconsistency because there's n people don't value consistency. They value moving forward and trying to do new things. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So... The 60s are more consistent, the 50s are more consistent, but overall, if you were to rank the other two, innovation and endurance, I would say the 70s shade it on the basis of that and the fact that they bring in the rest of the world, so it's music is a much bigger thing and there's more ideas more of the time and we're, we're valuing creativity more than we ever did before or since. I would agree with you. I would agree that, with you on that. Rant did, you have, did you have... Uh strong bands in Britain that were only popular in Britain or or regional bands yeah. that were maybe just popular in a certain part of Britain. Did you get to that point? Oh, no, that's a really good point, actually, John. Yeah, because the 70s is almost the end of that because after that, if bands get popular, people try and make them popular around the world. Now, it's interesting because we did, yeah. So if, if you think about what was huge in Britain but not huge in, in America or indeed the rest of the world, glam rock. Gl gl glam rock. So it, glam rock is sort of rock and roll. It's, well, Britain had money in the 70s and the record business and stuff was very successful. The country actually went through quite dark economic times. And glam rock was a, almost like the antidote to that because it's, it's basic rock and roll, but people are and a lot of these are working class British guys, so it's not a very glamorous thing really. Um, but it's, they're, they're, these are just people who make kind of basic rock and roll records which are made to be there and gone very quickly. I mean, the, the names that were huge in Britain, T-Rex, who had one major hit in America, Bang A Gong, you call it, but it was called Get It On Over Here. Um, I love T-Rex. Um, Slade, who spent years trying to break America and didn't because nobody could understand them when they opened their mouths. Um, they, so they, their interviews never really helped them, and, and, but they were a good, hard-working band. The only one, the only glam rock band that really exported to America significantly were probably one of the worst artistically, which were the Bay City Rollers. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and but they hit America playing... No, and, I'm, and actually punk was a big thing. You had punk rock in America, but I don't think British punk rock would recognize American punk rock. I mean, uh, the, the, punk rock was a more honest thing over here. It was literally what it looked like to start with. It was um, a lot of working class bands from cities, young people whose job prospects weren't great. Um, just, you know, getting together in bands and the whole thing about the kind of belligerent attitude. I mean, you have it in America, but in a different way. If, if you wanted to see an American band who had punk attitude but don't sound like punk, I'd say Leonard Skinner. Hmm. Um, you know, because <laughs> even their name is a sideswipe at their gym teacher, isn't it? If I understand I that saw, right. Yes, that's correct. Yep. I saw Leonard yeah. Skinner as kind of a, a cousin to the Eagles in terms of uh, the popularity of his music. So I think a lot of people saw Leonard Skinner in different ways. 
Yeah, but but the thing about Leonard Skinner, it, it, it's very punk attitude. It's like, you know, we're from the middle of nowhere. There isn't a whole lot else going for us here. So we'll form a rock band and, you know, we'll it's it's a metaphorical middle finger to the rest of the world, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the fact that the fact that you nick the name of your gym teacher and almost wave it in his face <laughs> is real attitude, you know, <laughs> because, as I understand it, they weren't guys who were particularly keen on gym class. You know? <laughs> um, so you have that attitude from regional places in america but it's it sounds very different i think um and you know american punk rock to me often sounded a bit like almost like people trying to take the catchiest bits of punk rock and you know and and make commercial records with it i mean america was way better on the kind of really creative punk so um you know with its punk attitude but it's very arty ideas like the talking heads and and people like that you know where they they're obviously they're in it for the music rather than the commercial success of it. And, you know, they're playing in clubs and stuff at the start of it. And it's interesting what one of your better bands from that era uh, had to come to Britain. Blondie were big in Britain before America huh. ever caught on to them. Yeah. yeah. And the Ramones as well. And Britain, the Ramones played my home city in Carlisle when I was just 18. And they were amazing. <laughs> you know, just, I mean, some of the songs are like 90 seconds and then they're onto a new song, you know. Um, and in, in many ways, they were just like they, they were just like us, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like, I know they're not, but for them to play the kind of regional cities like Carlisle, it was very much like, um, you know, you, you saw working class guys. It looked like working class guys on stage just doing it for the sake of doing it, not really thinking they were ever going to have a career out of it. And that was a big thing in Britain towards the end of the 1970s, the punk thing. And yeah, I mean, obviously, the Sex Pistols and the Clash were the, the bands that people that exported a little bit, although the Sex Pistols were pretty much they were already falling apart by the time they got to America. So America never really got them the way we did. You, you mentioned cities in Britain. I think a good question for you. I'd like to know what were some of the major cities in Britain that hatched genres of music or that hatched great performers consistently? Did you have those types of cities? I can name a bunch in the U.S. and I will in a minute, oh, yeah. but I kind of want to get your opinion on, on Great Britain. So in, in Great Britain, um, London probably, I've got to be careful what I say here because I've got friends who'll disagree with me massively on this but London to a certain extent I mean obviously it's the obvious one it's the capital city that to some extent it, it underperformed in the 1960s although the best London music was great uh, you know the kinks and the who and people like that and the arty music came out of London so more than the other cities the kind of the bands that had been to art college were mainly in and around London because it just stands to reason that the, the music industry wasn't that big. That was pretty much the only place you could get spotted and get a record deal. And there's more people in London. So if you're going to try and make money playing gigs, so people like Pink Floyd, for example, who were architecture students, if they'd, if they'd grown up in Glasgow, they probably wouldn't have had a chance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, the, the other obvious city for this, for the sixties and having its own sound is Liverpool where it was just, and, and, you know, Liverpool, there's an obvious reason for that because it was a big port city so records were imported there you could get american blues and soul records that wouldn't be easy to find certainly when i was growing up there were records you couldn't get in carlisle where i was you know we used to go shopping in and this is going into the 1970s it's different now but it was back in those days if you wanted to listen to reggae you had to order it you know 
um, like he had to hear it on the radio and go into the record shop and probably spell it out because they'd never heard of it themselves, you know. Um, but Liverpool had that thing going for it. Manchester is very underrated because it's um, the best Manchester bands of any era were often really great down the line pop bands. And certainly from the 1970s onwards, Manchester has been a real melting pot for great music. And the thing is, there's no Manchester sound other than <laughs> crudely. It's often been at the cutting edge of the best druggy music. So when much later than we're talking about the late 80s when the whole ecstasy scene what's now called mdma was a huge thing in british music the best bands into that were playing in clubs in manchester where the drugs were freely available and the stone roses the happy mondays um and uh, 808 state in particular and a new order of a manchester band you know and um there's there's that's that place has always had a kind of a really gritty, arty sound to it. Uh, another, I mean, if you want to think about another city or two of the cities that have their own sounds, well, Glasgow and Newcastle have always been real rock cities. So there's been great music has come out of those new, the animals from Newcastle. Oh, yeah. yeah, Eric Burden. You know that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That there, he was, he was eighty the other day. Again, a bit like Jerry Lee Lewis. Would you have bet yep. on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eric, Eric Burden, tremendous. I, I, I tried up for a, a band, believe it or not. This was just a few years ago, and uh, they had me uh, doing um, The House of the Rising Sun. And my voice, when I was 15, couldn't come close to Eric Burden. He sounded no. like he was 32. Yeah, absolutely, because it, it's, you know... The, Totally. He's he's something. I mean, unfortunately, he hasn't quite got the range these days, but there's there's unrepentant attitude music, rock attitude music comes out of the. I mean, these are Glasgow and Newcastle are really tough cities. You know, they've got a history of, um, you know, unemployment and all the things that make them so in, in the same way that places like Detroit or Chicago have had their problems. And you can hear some of that in the kind of just the raw energy of the music. Glasgow and Edinburgh, uh, Glasgow and Newcastle have that, yeah, and and you know they, they've and it's it's almost like in any era, those cities will produce people who have that spirit. It just they'll sound different depending on when it actually happens. In the U.S., you can I mean, the hot spots are pretty obvious, and sometimes they're not so obvious. Uh, but one was New York City. A lot of good music came out of New York City. There was a place there in New York yeah. City called the Brill Building. It was kind of a reincarnation mm. of Tin Pan Alley. And the Brill Building was like a six-story monster that it had everything in it. it if you, you could walk into the Brill, Brill Building, you could sit down at a piano, you could compose music. You've got a composer sitting next to you. You could go down the hall, you could get a guy to, to write up a contract for you. Go down the hall, get a, get a practice band. You know, mm. in every direction you could go, you could get the whole thing done within a week. And that was called the Brill Building. And a lot of talent, oh, yeah. a lot of songs came out of the Brill Building. People like Neil I'm Diamond, uh, Carol yeah. King. Yeah, yeah that, that was just huge. And New York, of course, just because of the fact that it had a huge population and a very diverse population mm. gave us a lot of great music. There was there was L.A. And out in L.A., you you not only had, in the 60s especially, you had the great beach music from groups like Jan and Dean and groups like the Beach Boys, but you had a, you had an instrumental in the studios out there. There was an instrumental group called the Wrecking Crew. Oh, yeah, no, I don't no, know no, if you've ever heard of them they, or they, seen they were, them. In fact, they're the guys and woman carol carol kane yeah who, who play on pet sounds aren't they that in and they're 
No, I, I, I've heard of them. And in fact, that you know, you mentioned Brian Wilson earlier on, John, yeah? The biopic of Brian Wilson, I think, I think it's a wonderful way to tell the story because you only see him twice, don't you? You see him in 1966 and in 1988. And um, John Cusack, who plays the older Brian Wilson, is trying to escape from the... Uh, was it psychiatrist that Eugene Landy that was looking after him? But he's making the comeback album, the last really good album he made. And then in the 60s, they film him recording pets. Uh, yeah, they, that's that's where where the story's set. So there's all those moments when he's mm-hmm. in the he's in the studio with the wrecking crew, and you know he's handing them these weird parts, and they're looking at it and like, oh, do we really have to do this? And yeah, without their skill. You know, I mean, it's, it, they, they were an amazing setup, weren't they? Because, first of all, sometimes they, they were your go-to crew for things like if you wanted, if you wanted the music for a fictitious band, like it from a cartoon series or something, the Wrecking Crew could handle that. And then in the next breath, they could record Pet Sounds. I mean, amazing. And and Carol Kane, the bass player, for example, yeah. that's groundbreaking because. In that era, it would have been very difficult for a female bass player as good as her to, to get a job in a working band where she could have shown how brilliant she was. Yeah. Yep. They were they were quite amazing. They had a lot of the famous rips from songs that came out of the '60s that we remember today. Whether it was Sonny and Cher, oh, there was hundreds of them. But there was all. They not only did great uh, improvising when it came to some of the riffs that came out of the '60s. But they also backed up uh, some of your more commonplace singers, like your your Barbara Streisands, and even uh, I mm. believe they did some work for Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, no, stuff you would never expect. Uh, but they were uh, an extremely talented bunch, and a lot of the music that came out of the '60s yeah, was the, the, thanks the, the to them. The skill of the individual musicians. I mean, like Hal Blaine, the drummer, for example. Um, if you do, <laughs> if you listen to everything, his yeah yeah well, Hal exactly. Blaine, and his he's CV a legend. is just. It's incredible that one musician would play so well across so many records. I, again, I, I, years ago now, but I, I played on on my show. He made a psychedelic percussion album, and it's incredible. I mean, but it's you know, it, it's obvious <laughs> what they're trying to do. It's like let's get the best drummer we can possibly do and do the most amazing sounds we can, but on a drum album. And I'm not sure that you'd want to sit down and quietly listen to the whole thing, but it's just this thing. You know, that was the skill of the, the, the best Wrecking Crew musicians would have been able to get a job in anybody's band at any time. They were just absolute professionals. You were talking about big festivals, and uh, the 60s were really known for the great festivals. Monterey might have been the first one, but there were others that followed, and there became a festival route uh, for these groups. Uh, I remember in 1968, uh, there was a... a the huge festival route that took place on the East Coast as they were moving from festival to festival. And by the way, it was Bob Dylan, I think, at Newport, who mm. first plugged into an amplifier. I mean, these were these used to be mm. uh, folk pop festivals, and everything was just, it was acoustic, mm. but no real electric. And they, of course, there were mics everywhere, but not amps. And it, and Dylan took a lot of heat for that. But ever since he plugged in, those uh, those festivals mm. became plugged as well. And, and in years like 67, 68, 69, you had these great festivals, especially on the East Coast, Woodstock uh, being one. Atlantic City was a week before Woodstock. Uh, Atlantic City uh, had 80,000 people. It started on Friday night, and it went straight through Sunday night. And the, the last act Sunday night was in the rain. That was a big mm-hmm. racetrack on um, huge stands. And the last group 
uh, on Sunday night there was Janis Joplin. Uh, and uh, but I was standing there five feet yeah. from the edge of the stage when Janice uh, was on that stage. She had a, there was a black guy playing uh, guitar for her. It was just her and that black guy. The band had left, and there was a little wooden table between them, and on that table sat a bottle of Southern Comfort. She had uh, typical Janice Joplin. She had beads and chains and, and, and bracelets and wristlets <laughs> all over her, late 60s purple clothes, and uh, she was wild. She was uh, just an incredible performer live to see. But the people at that festival, you had Iron Butterfly, you had uh, Credence Clearwater. There must have been 25 great Led Zeppelin. Um, then you had people like B.B. King uh, out there. And you had people like Little Richard, who flashbacks from the 50s. So the festivals were fun, and they had a lot of different talent out there, all kinds of music. That, that, that's a really good point, I think. By the 70s, people had got wise to what you could do with the festival, i.e. that it, it, they were, because they, they were quite experimental in the 60s. I mean, it, whilst it would have been great to be at some of those festivals, some of the classic ones, the the, the weather at Woodstock is awful. And, the, you know, by the, the, there were no big screens. So if you were at the back and it was somebody like the Incredible String Band on stage, um, I'm guessing you probably you, you wouldn't have been having a great time if there's if there's a folk singer and you're you're about half a mile away and, and there isn't even a screen you know um, but I, I tell you an interesting thing about Woodstock I did a uh, must have been 2009 we we did a I did a radio show and we just themed it around the fact that it was the the big anniversary of Woodstock right um, so. It was 50 years since Woodstock, and rather than do a show just with the Woodstock stuff, I had a look at all the people who turned it down. Um, and it, there's some right. amazing stories about who ended up at Woodstock and who didn't, because, of course, when they booked to go at Woodstock, they didn't know that the movie was going to be so successful. So, for example, um, Santana became a massive international act on the back of the Woodstock movie. They were playing festivals wherever they could get on the bill because they knew that they went down well at a festival and it was a good way to find an audience because their whole Latin collision of psychedelia and rock and everything didn't always make a lot of sense. I mean, it made sense in the West Coast, but, you know, you go out east and you're not going to find a, a, a an audience that are familiar with that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's Santana. That I'm pretty sure that what happened at Woodstock was that they desperately wanted the Grateful Dead. And they, was it Bill Graham who was managing them at the time? He cut a deal with the festival promoters and he said, well, okay, but you're going to take at least one of my acts that you've not asked for. And apparently it was between It's a Beautiful Day, who were kind of hippies with a violin player and everything, right? And Santana, and they literally tossed a coin. Yeah. And, and it came down for Santana. And you've got to wonder what It's a Beautiful Day's life would have been like if they'd been in that movie. Because presumably they'd have been well enough known, they could have toured Europe and stuff, and they might have been massive. And when you look at the people who turned it down and why, Spirit's records, the band Spirit, their record label, were thought it a, bit, a bigger priority to send them on a tour of radio stations to promote an album than to play that gig. The Moody Blues were coming off the back of a tour. The Moody Blues were one of the first acts ever approached. And the, apparently the festival promoters really, really wanted them. But the Moody Blues had been on the road for ages and didn't think one more gig was actually that worth exactly. it. Exactly. Now, okay, 
their career probably didn't suffer greatly because they still went on to have number one albums in America and stuff after that. What was amazing yep. was we got a really good radio no, good show point. out of it and we devoted half the show to the people who never never went but were asked to go or could have gone, yeah? You think the 70s are second best to the 60s. But at the end of the 60s, the best-selling albums ever were still um, the soundtrack to The Sound of Music, Oklahoma, and things like that. The first biggest selling album ever to overtake those was Tapestry by yeah. Carol King. Yep. It was the first That was huge when that, that hit. That. She was Brill yeah. Building, by and the way. Yes, of course she was, yeah. And in fact, ta her, she had a husband or boyfriend named Goffin. I think it was her husband. Jerry Goffin, yeah, 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 yeah. And actually, Tapestry includes her revisiting some of her Brill Building work, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow yeah. is on Tapestry, but it's obviously it was a hit before that. For So in that sense, if you're saying, well, the biggest albums in the 60s, I mean, I, the biggest selling album in the world in the 60s, we got through the whole of that decade with that amazing music without any of those albums overtaking the sound of music. If you're British, we didn't have the huge advantages like economically and, the, and just the size of the industry that you had in the 1960s, yeah? I mean, m music was a bright spot in a pretty dull decade, <laughs> yeah? People talk about it now like the swinging in 60s, but if, if <clears throat> the people I knew that lived through it, they didn't always experience it like that. It, we, we, you know, Britain was still a country that was struggling away from a war, and we'd been bombed, you hadn't, so we had a lot of building back to do. You sure flipped us upside down in the 60s with the British invasion. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget going to a Four Seasons concert and, ha and hearing Frankie Valley talk about uh, how uh, everything was just going absolutely gangbusters until the British hit. And then uh, then they were no longer number one, two, three, four, and five on the chart. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he said they weren't they weren't above stealing songs either. Oh, the Beatles. Uh, it, was, it, it was funny. He was talking about uh, they, had they were just uh, starting to go over this music. It hadn't been, they hadn't bought it yet, um, but they had a, a demo uh, going on. Yeah, the song was called Silence is Golden. And the and, and they're in the, I'm not sure if it was the Brill Building, maybe it was. And uh, they're, oh, they're Silence doing is Silence is Golden, they're trying to work on it. And the manager Silence for the tremolos is, passes is by golden, the room yeah. and he hears them doing it. And he pulls together the tremolos down at about five doors down and they're doing it. And they ended up coming out with the first copy of Silence is Golden. It was, it was, it was breakneck back in those days. They, one one group on top of another, and it was a race to see who could get it out first. That's how <laughs> stiff the competition was. Not to get off the subject, but this whole thing is the subject. So All right. I'll let you continue. I think your perception of it, to some extent, it's to do with when you grow up. Although the interesting thing is that <laughs> I still I'm still excited about music I hear these days. On the odd occasion, somebody asks me, what's the best album yeah. ever made? I, my, my first reaction would be, that's just a stupid question. <laughs> you know, I mean, how, how, how can you compare? You know, I mean, James Brown and the Eagles, I mean, both made great albums, but... I would agree with that. You know, you, so, but I mean, interestingly, I keep falling back on The Queen is Dead by The Smiths, which for me is just an incredible record. Um, and I think partly when you pick your best decades it's partly to do with when you grow up but sometimes maybe things will just i was yeah right but but by the time the queen is dead came out or one or two of the albums i absolutely love it's almost like the longer you go the more something has to be absolutely brilliant to knock you sideways yeah um so partly it's that but the, the other thing i think is that 
probably America had a better 60s than the rest of the world did musically. And it was part, you know, because however good music was in the 60s, the people I know that were big music fans in the 60s, the problem in this country was you didn't hear a lot of it on the radio. So some of the music I've gone back and discovered from the 60s, which I think is absolutely brilliant, like I mentioned Moby Grape a while ago, um, I didn't even hear the first Moby Grape album until must have been the 1980s. And I couldn't have walked into a record shop and easily found it. Yeah. Um, you know, so... You're right about the 60s in America. Uh, uh, when World War II ended and uh, a lot of the veterans came home here, it started uh, a real, real positive growth in the economy on this end. You started to see suburbs springing up. Uh, you started yeah. to see the GI bills go into effect. And those guys... Uh, those guys uh, would go and, and put on a, a Perry Como record. The next thing you know, a bunch of us boomers were born. Uh, or maybe it was a Dean Martin record, depending on who your dad was. <laughs> and and yeah. baby boomers started popping up everywhere. Yeah. And uh, in order to appease those guys, you had uh, everything from Disney World to uh, tremendous marketing of, of uh, records and rock and roll. Uh, right up there through the late 50s and especially into the 60s, mm. when the baby boom generation hit age 14, 15, 16, 17, boom. That just took off in America. Yeah. Well, there is stuff. I mean, certainly the stuff in America that only made sense there at the time, which is now being rediscovered, you know, by the rest of the world. I mean, the, the whole one of the tags I love to follow on these online sites where you can just go and help yourself to music, uh, stuff that gets called Exotica, but nobody called it Exotica then. And it's all the kind of Les Baxter yeah. records, you know, these things that people bought to. The whole point of those records is that they've got to sound exotic and they've got to sound impressive when your friends come <laughs> around and you've got your new hi-fi system, right? Yeah. And so I don't remember ever hearing stuff like that much when I was growing up because it, we were just, I suppose it took a long time for the quality of those hi-fis and people in Britain to be able to afford them. And I listen to them now and they're amazing. And, the, the, you know, obviously there are reissue labels that just buy a whole pile of Martin Denny and stuff and stick it out there. Um, and I just think they sound great now. And they sound, they just sound, well, they're exotic. That's a good word for them. But it's a very American thing. You know, you, you, you're listening to a time and an, an attitude that would be difficult to recreate now because it's, um, yeah, just it's, the, the world has moved on, basically. But it's an indication of how, the market in America would be very, very different to the market in anywhere else in the world because there's no real British exotica that begins to get close to that or European stuff or anything. It just it, that market for that kind of sound with a really good hi-fi and all these these little trickery, you know, the the production trickery going around it. It just wasn't there anywhere than America. Do you have any favorite yeah. any favorite uh, but, 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 solo vocalists from the? from the 60s, 70s, 80s that you still enjoy listening to? Yeah, if I, if, if I turn the camera the other way, there's a load of vinyl. <laughs> um, well, I suppose that, yeah, a lot of the obvious ones, the singer-songwriters and people like that. I mean, if the person I've seen most on stage, i.e. I've spent a lot of money <laughs> to watch, is Neil Young, yeah? Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen him since the first time I saw him was the trans tour, which was, it was the time he sounded the least like Neil Young he ever did. Yep. Yeah. Um, but I, I just, I, I love his stuff and, and I've never tired of him. And 
I mean, more than the others, I would have a, I would have an argument with anybody that he's, he's not just a musician, he's an artist. Mm-hmm. He's, I think partly because a bit like Bob Dylan and some of the others who've been with us for ages, there have been times when... Elton John. The, yeah, yeah but, but, but him as well, actually, yeah. But there have been times when the critics have written them off or thought what they were doing didn't have any value. And later on, you realise that a guy like Neil Young is smarter than the record companies because his, his whole ability to endure is is based on the fact that fundamentally that, that first i've heard him say that he you know the way he explains it is he just follows the music in other words it's what's inside him and i mean one thing that would typify that is that when the first time i saw him and i've been I, he never i because i grew up in the middle of nowhere i used to go to every gig that was on but half the time it was people i didn't really care that much about right but it was a gig and i'd go so when I moved down to London and I could see anybody I wanted to, the fact that I was going to see Neil Young was a huge thing. And then he played this electronic music where he was singing through a vocoder. And okay, he played a lot of other stuff as well. But those were just, it was like the album wasn't even out. So we'd never heard it. And it was just mystifying. And there's a song on that album called Transformer Man. And I remember the album getting slated and people saying, oh, this is this is pathetic. He's trying to he's trying to sound like Kraftwerk and all these electronic bands. And he plays Transformer Man on the Unplugged album in the 90s. And the whole point is that people just didn't get it. And it's a beautiful song. In actual fact, it's um, it's one of the most heartbreaking love songs you could ever hear. It's a song. It's a love song to his son who's disabled. And it's about the fact that the one place that they can be like a normal father and son is playing with a train set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we transform a man. He's literally about the transformer of the train set. Um, and that's a really typical kind of Neil Young thing. That's one of the reasons I absolutely love him because at, at the very moments I thought, you know, what are you thinking? I, like I've, I've listened to a new album occasionally and thought, really? You know, he just comes back and he either proves you wrong. It grows on you later on or you suddenly realise that you missed entirely what he was doing. You know, he was ahead of you. Um, so, I mean, I could go on about other people, but he would be... I mean, I've had frank exchanges of views with people I've worked with where I've suggested that he's at least the equal of Bob Dylan. Okay. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you've got to be careful Dylan, you say that Dylan's written somewhere over a thousand songs. I know that. It's just an amazing uh, record he's got. They're not all great, but he certainly had put out a lot of good ones. No. And R- Rough and Roundy Ways last year is a great album. And, I mean, Bob Dylan sold his song, The Future Rights, because a lot of them are doing it now, aren't they? And what Bob Dylan got twice, what Neil Young got. So I'm not arguing with that. I mean, but Bob Dylan's song catalog was reputedly sold for something like $300 million, wasn't it? I mean, he's 80. I mean, he's he's just turning 80, isn't he? So um, obviously, you know, he's he hasn't got that. Well, he's Bob Dylan. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't bet against him making a great album when he's not. I wouldn't bet against it. You know. There's got to be something. There's got to be something to all that hemp uh, for reaching your later years. It, it hasn't hurt Willie or, or Bob yes. or a lot of people. Who... Oh, no, it, it's not the people. David Crosby, Stills, yeah. Nash, and Young are all breathing as we yep. talk. How the hell did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard about them. Yeah, and they but, were at Woodstock. David. Well, yeah, absolutely. And D- David Crosby's autobiography in about 1990 
he's telling the story. I mean, he, he only got clean because he got he went to jail and he couldn't right. get his supply yeah. anymore, right? He didn't he didn't choose to go clean. It was forced <laughs> on him, right? And the, the, his autobiography, long time gone, is a weird autobiography because basically what happens he writes his own story there's three people write the story because every once in a while he has to admit he can't remember yeah yeah so his mate pops up and says well you know while you were away this is what was going on <laughs> yeah. yeah and you know long time gone it's 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 he's chronicling a life the huge chunks of it he just can't remember i mean yeah how the hell <laughs> i'm glad he's with us and he said he, david crosby's making some good records i mean he's he's catching up fast a bit like ringo he's actually he was always thought of maybe as you know one of the more minor members of the band, but um, he's very productive at the moment. But yeah, it's amazing. He's I had still a question with us. for you: Is it the water in Wales? Why is it that so many great artists come out of Wales? <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah. There's a great yeah. tradition of singing in Wales. I mean, look, I'm, you're asking the wrong guy. I'm not Welsh, but. Um, there's certainly a great tradition of singing male voice choirs and it's 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 a it's a weird place because it's quite a manly culture a lot of it i mean it's based on you know the the big industry for there there for years was coal mining which is quite yes. a tough manly industry yeah. yeah and 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 a way you can show your sensitive side as a man and still be quite manly is to get into a, vo a male voice choir and really project so that this they have a big tradition of that um as to yeah i mean tom jones and shirley bassey i i I, I don't know because it's you're right. It, Goldfinger, it man, she she really belted that out. I can still hear that one. That was a great, yeah. great piece. Yeah, but 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 places with a real sense of their own identity, and Ireland is another one. You know, they they uh, they often produce great music because people value that you express your identity, like in some cultural way. And I mean, you know, again, considering how few people live in Ireland, it punches above its weight in terms of musicians and writers particularly but um you know for a country as small as ireland to produce the likes of u2 i.e one of the biggest bands in history you know it's not well but there's there's way more people in italy but they haven't got a, anybody to touch u2 i think we've about covered it neil what about you yeah yeah right. absolutely you want to add really anything enjoyed that. It's, I, I would I would love to do a beer with you, John, but there's a few thousand miles between us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's going to be rough. But uh, yeah, symbolically, yeah. here it is. Here's to you. Cheers. Yeah. And one, my, thank my, you for my your... English tea. Yeah. So <laughs> you've want... got your American coffee. I've got my English tea. Yeah. But I want to I want no. to thank you for your time today. I absolutely really enjoyed speaking with you yeah. uh, on the topic of rock and roll. And I got a hunch UFOs is going to be just as much fun. Okay. Yeah. M m mutual, John. Yeah. So I'd like uh, I'd like our listeners and your listeners to know that we're coming up with a sequel here, and we're going to be talking uh, UFOs. So everybody, uh, stay tuned for that, and we'll yeah, let you know when I'll that's going to happen. Look forward to that, John. Thank you very much. That was really enjoyable. But yeah. You're very welcome. Now that we're reaching the end, I'm going to let you again tell people oh, okay, how they can right. hear your show. So I have a radio show called uh, Strange Fruit, which goes out on a network called Miskin Radio, easy to find online between 10 and 12 on a Sunday night in the UK. So it's four or five hours earlier in America, depending on your time zone. Uh, the Gonzo Multimedia Mix Cloud has old copies of the show for listen on demand if you want to listen to that uh, if you put neil nixon into amazon n-i-x-o-n like your old president no relation um then you can find my books i've got neilnixon.com or the wikipedia page of neil nixon will get you to my website 
Um, and uh, I do Zoom talks and stuff on some of these subjects as well. Yeah, really appreciate all that, John. Yeah. Let's take a minute to review what we've been discussing here in the first two episodes. Neil sees the greatest decade of rock and roll between the 50s, 60s, and 70s as the 70s, and I think he made a pretty good case for it. He has the 60s in its second place and the 50s in third. I was 60s first, 50s second, and 70s third. One of Neil's strong points about the 70s was albums and the rise in sales of albums, which is absolutely true. I missed a good comeback with that, however, being that 45 RPM single sales were diminishing by the late 60s, especially with the rise in popularity of FM radio, which offered long play options to serious rock listeners, and artists like the Grateful Dead and others who didn't rely on single sales had finally found a format they could grow and profit in. In addition to FM radio, 8-track cassette sales, which were albums recorded on tape, also began to replace the purchase of singles. We both agreed on the possibility of collaborating on some rock and roll history shows in the future, maybe doing the story behind different rock and pop bands, as well as individual hits. There are thousands of stories surrounding the world of rock and roll. We were only able to tell a few here, and that took a couple hours. We'd like to use the music as well in those shows, but it's protected by copyright and requires some pretty stiff licenses to broadcast worldwide, which we do here in podcasting. I will have posted part one of this interview on facebook.com forward slash 1001 Heroes by the time you all hear this, and I invite you to chip in with your opinions as to the greatest decade. And you're not just limited to the 50s, 60s, and 70s, although we would appreciate your opinion as to how they rank for you and why. When our debate interview finished, we talked a little bit about our upcoming interview on UFOs, and I'm sending that to our Patreon supporters as a prime cut. You can hear it by signing up to support us at patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, forward slash 1001 Stories Network, where we send ad-free archived episodes to everyone, and prime cut episodes, which are mostly early bird releases, to our upper-tier supporters. For about the price of a blended cup of coffee each month, you can get hundreds of ad-free episodes from all seven of our 1001 shows and help support a family-friendly network of great shows dealing with history, as well as great literature, and even old-time radio at 1001 Radio Days. All our shows launch new episodes weekly on Sunday nights around 7.30 to just about every podcast host out there. Like Spotify, Apple iTunes, Pod Paradise, you name it, we're there. Thank you for being with us here, and we'll be back soon with a brand new episode before you know it. Uh, my name is John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, the Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast, and it's great having you with us today. Thanks for joining us, and thank you, Neil. We appreciate it, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, pretty enjoyed it too, John. Thank you. Mutual. Yeah.